Good evening. About six months ago, on the very first day of rehearsals for His Dark Materials, Philip Pullman had to leave the rehearsal room to go down to Lambeth Palace to record an interview with the Archbishop of Canterbury that was later broadcast on Channel 4. In that conversation, they discussed the crisis in childhood, whether it existed, and whether or not it was fueled by consumerism and by the media, and what space could be found for children and for childhood. Tonight, they're going to continue this conversation, but moving on to other areas, in particular religious education and representation of religion in drama and entertainment. Last Monday, the Archbishop spoke at Downing Street about his dark materials, and he recommended it, saying that he was delighted to see large school parties in the audience and found it vastly encouraging. But he did say that he hoped teachers were equipped to tease out what in Pullman's world is and is not reflective of Christian teaching, as Christians understand it. And I would like to start the conversation, and this is a conversation, not an interview, but there will be time for questions at the end. I'd like to start the conversation by asking the Archbishop how we might tease out the differences. Well, thank you. Um, I suppose one of the questions I would like to hear more about from Philip, if I can ask that, is what has happened to Jesus in the church in this world? Because, as I suggested last week, one of the interesting things for me in the, the model of the church in the plays and the books is it's a church, as it were, without redemption. It's entirely about control. Yes. And although I know that's how a lot of people do see the church, um, you won't be surprised to know that that's not exactly how I see it. <laughs> and, uh, the chance would be a fine thing, I sometimes yeah. say. <laughs> but uh, it's, not, it's not that. And there was the other question which I raised last week about the fascinating figure of the authority in the books and the plays, who, who is God for all practical purposes, not people's eyes, mm. and yet, of course, is not the creator. So those are the kinds yeah. of differences that I'm intrigued by here. Yes, well, to answer the question about Jesus first, uh, no, he doesn't figure in the, in the teaching of the church as, as I described the church in, in the story. Um, I think he's mentioned once uh, in the context of... Um, in the context of wisdom, in the context of this notion of uh, wisdom that works secretly and quietly, in the, not in the great courts and palaces of the earth, but quietly among ordinary people and so on. Um, and there are some teachers who have embodied this quality, but, who have been, but whose teaching has been perhaps perverted or twisted or turned uh, and, and used in a fashion that they themselves didn't either desire or expect or, uh, or, or could see happening. So there, there's a sort of reference to the teaching of Jesus, which I, um, I may return to in the next book, but I don't want to anticipate too much because I found that if I say, if I tell people what I'm going to write about, I don't write it. Something happens to prevent it. Uh, so I better not anticipate that too much, but I, I'm conscious that that, that that is a question that has been sort of hovering over the, um, over the, over the, under, over, over people's understanding of the story, anyway. 
The figure of the authority is rather easier. Uh, in, the, in the sort of creation myth that underlies uh, his dark materials, which is never fully explicit, but which I was discovering, actually, as I was writing it, uh, the notion is that uh, there never was a creator. Instead, there was matter. And as matter gradually became conscious of itself and developed this developed dust, as it were, dust sort of proceeds from matter as a way of understanding itself. Um, the creator was the first, the, the authority was the first figure that sort of condensed, as it were, in this way. Um, and from then on, he was the oldest, the most powerful, the most, uh, the most authoritative figure, and all the other angels at first believed he was the creator, and then some, some angels decided that he wasn't, and the, so we had the sort of um, the temptation, the, the fall and the tempt, all that sort of stuff came from that. And the figure of the authority who dies in the story is, um, well, one of the metaphors I use in the passage, I, just, I wrote about his description, he was as light as paper. Uh, he, in other words, he, he has a, a, a reality which is only, you know, only symbolic, it's not, it's not real. And, and he's, he's, the last expression on his face is that of profound and exhausted relief. That's, that was important for me. That's not something you can easily show with a puppet to the back of the theatre. No. Now that's, that's very helpful because I think it, it reinforces my sense that part of the mythology here was what came from those, some of those early Jewish and Christian, or half-Christian versions of the story. Yeah. in which you have a terrific drama of cosmic revolt. Somebody is trying to pull the wool over your eyes, yeah. is the, the underlying thing. And wisdom is an unmasking. And I think if, if you have a view of God, which makes God internal to the universe, that's what happens. Yes. Someone's going to be pulling the wool over your eyes. I suppose that's right, yes. The, um, the, the, the word that covers some of these early creation narratives is Gnostic, of course. The, um, the, the, the Gnostic heresy, as it, it became a heresy once Christianity was sort of defined, the idea that, 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 that the, the world we live in, the, the physical universe, is actually a false thing made by a false god, and the true god, our true home, our true spiritual home, is infinitely distant, far off, a long way away from that. Uh, which is something that we find a lot of this sense in popular culture, don't you think? Yes. The X-Files, you know, the truth yes, is out there. Yes. Um, the, um, the Matrix. Yes. Everything that we see is, is, is the false creation of some wicked power that's trying to, as you say, pull the wool over our eyes. And there are many others. I, remember when I wonder why, you, can I just ask you a question for a minute? What do you put this down to, this sort of, the, 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 the great salience of Gnostic feelings, Gnostic sort of sentiments and ways of thinking in our mm. present world? What's the, what's the yeah. source of that, do you think? Well, let, me, let me try two thoughts on that. One is that the, the human sense that things are not in harmony, not on track, can very easily lead you into a kind of dramatic or even melodramatic picture of the universe in which somebody's got to be to blame for that. Yeah. So we was robbed. You know, we have been deceived. It should have been different. It could have been different. So salvation, or whatever you want to call it, then becomes very much a matter of getting out from underneath the falsehood, pulling away the masks. And that that's tremendously powerful, I think, as, as a myth of liberation. It's what a lot of people feel is owed to them. And I think some of the, some of the fascination of the Enlightenment itself as, as a moment in cultural history 
is the fascination of being able to say, we can do without authority because authority is always after us. One 20th century philosopher said that the attraction of somebody like Freud is charm. It is charming to destroy prejudice, he said, <clears throat> because we have this sense, this is the real story. Oh, now we've got it. Second thing about the popularity of this mythology is that even the most secularized person very often has problems about the meaning of the body. And it is very, very tempting, very charming, again, I think, attractive, to say, what really matters is my, is my will. And if the reality is my will and my thoughts, and there is somewhere a condition where I can get the, the body where it belongs, get it under control, then that's, that's where I want to be. And of course, Christians and other religious people do buy into that um, in ways that are, that are very problematic. And it's very hard sometimes to, to get the balance right theologically. Well, this, this brings up the fall, of course, of course. all the notions of, of, uh, of, of sin that are bound up with our physicality, right. supposedly. Uh, which is one thing I was trying to get away from in my story sure. um, and try and present the idea that the, the, the fall, which like any myth, is not something that has, has happened once in a historical sense, but happens again and again in all our lives. Uh, the fall is something that happens to all of us when we move from childhood to, through adolescence to adulthood. Um, and I wanted to find a way of presenting it as something natural and good and to be welcomed and, you know, celebrated rather than deplored. Mm. There's a real tension, I think, in, in quite a lot of Christian thinking about just that question. Is the fall about bodies or not? Mm. And you do get some Christian thinkers who, who would say, yes, the body is even the result of the fall. Um, and then others who say, well, no, there was, was, you know, metaphorically, yeah. there is a level of bodily existence which is okay, which is willed by God. And coincidentally, I was reading just a few days ago a letter by David Jones, the Anglo-Welsh poet and hmm. painter, and he's writing about the fall and about Milton's oh. perception of the fall, where he notes that in Milton, as soon as Adam and Eve are thrown out of Eden, the first thing they do is to have sex. And David Jones says, that is the bloody limit. <laughs> because you know, he's, he's writing as, as a Catholic with a rather strong investment in the idea of saved material life. Yes. There, there is a right, a godly way of, of this existing. It's not just about experience, sex, the body, and so forth being part of what goes wrong. Mm. It's a mixed bag, historically. <laughs> people talk about it mildly. One of the most interesting things for me about this, this, the notion of the fall um, is that the, the, the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve is that they were embarrassed. Uh, when, with, con with consciousness, it's, for me, it's all burned up with consciousness and the coming of understanding of things and, and making the beginning of intellectual inquiry, um, which, which happens in, typically in one's adolescence when one begins to be interested in poetry and art and science and all these other things. Uh, and the, 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 with, with consciousness comes self-consciousness, comes shame, comes embarrassment, comes all these things, which are very difficult to deal with. That's right. I think that, that as, a, as a religious person, I'd say that's, that's a neutral phenomenon. That's just what happens. Hmm. And one of the fallacies of religion that's not working is to suppose that somehow you can, you can spin the reel backwards and go back to yeah. 
pure unself-consciousness. Which is a false, which is a, which is a misreading. After all, it, it says in Genesis, there's an angel with a fiery sword standing in the way. You can't go can't back. can't go back. The only way is, is forward. Yes. Um, and yes, sorry to quote Anglo-Welsh poets again, but one of R.S. Thomas's pieces about there being no way back to the garden. Yeah. Well, the only way is forward to forward. whatever there is. And I think I, I quoted you once before when we were talking um, that statement of von Hugel, the um, Catholic philosopher, beginning of the last century, who says the greatest good for an unfallen being would be innocence, but the greatest good for a fallen being is forgiveness and reconciliation. Yeah. Which sort of brings in what I think the version you're getting at leaves out. I think that's probably right. Now, how do we teach this? <laughs> do we teach? What do we teach in RE? Not enough, I think. <laughs> Not enough. And that, that was really the burden of what I was trying to drive at last week in the, yes. the Downing Street talk, that I'm worried about a religious education which tries to do it from the outside in which says, well, here's what religious people do. And it's always just a little bit on the edge of, here are these funny foreigners doing strange <laughs> things. Um, I've seen some RE textbooks, which do give you that rather uncomfortable impression that you're looking from outside, oh, isn't that interesting? And it doesn't really give you much sense of what it feels like to be religious, why it's difficult to be religious, why it hurts to be religious. Um, why people want to stop being religious and why people want to start being religious. And the only, well, I would say the only way, but one of the ways you can do this is by personal narrative, which is why I'm interested in the role of both fiction and autobiography yes. in religious education. Yes. Now, if, if one of the goals of, of um, RE is to help children understand what it feels like to be religious, are there different ways of being religious? Is it, mm. it, does it feel different, for example, to be a Sikh than it does to be a Christian? And if so, should we help children feel all these different ways? It's a tall order, isn't it? But I think obviously there are differences unless you just want to say, well, what matters is the religiousness and never mind the details, which I think is a, yeah. a dead end, frankly. Yeah. Um, and even people who have been rather critical of what I've said on religious education have, I think, on the whole, agreed that that's not the way to, yeah. to go. Um, now, there's a limit to the empathy you can expect of somebody who's still learning, exploring at that level. But I don't want to... Uh, okay, I suppose I don't want to underrate the seriousness of students in schools mm. and what they can cope with. I'm completely with you on that one. And to try and help people to see why, as I say, why religious belief can be difficult, why it can be appallingly oppressive why it can be amazingly liberating at times. Mm. Get inside that a bit. That's why I've talked a bit about autobiography at times as a vehicle for this. And looking at what people actually say of how it's difficult and how they live through it, or don't. And then I think you've begun to, to see that being religious is, is a way of, not just, but at least a way of being human at a certain depth. And I don't think you'd entirely disagree with that from what I, what I hear, even if you don't think it's about anything solid at the end of the day. Um, well, I think that the relig religion is something that all people have done, or people in every society, sure. that seems to, have, seems to be the case. Mm. It's a universal human impulse, the, the sense of um, awe and transcendence. It's, it's possible to find that in most mm -hmm. 
to cite it, and in a great deal of art. And this would bring yes, me on yes, what I was going to ask next. Um, what, <clears throat> how, do you see, um, how do you see fiction, for example, being used in... in, in uh, would you use fiction? Would you sort of be instrumental about it? I, yes, or is it definitely. an end in itself? I, I'd rather ah, think that right, fiction is an end in itself. Sorry, I, I would use it in teaching, but yeah. I think one's got to be very careful about using it um, in the sense of saying, well, you've got to have a message you can squeeze out. Well, this is what worries me. What, what you learn, I think, after absorbing a really serious piece of fiction is not a message. Your world has, has expanded. Your world has been enlarged yeah. at the end of it. Yeah. And the more a writer focuses on message, the less expansion there will be. <laughs> and I think that's why sometimes the most successful inverted commas, Christian fiction is written by people who are not trying hard to be Christian about it. Yeah. A bit of a paradox, but I'm thinking of one or two writers, um, Flannery O'Connor, the American writers, yeah. my favorite examples here. Somebody who quite deliberately doesn't set out to make the points that you might expect her to be making, but wants to build a world in which certain things may become plausible or, mm. or tangible not to get a message across. Isn't this what happens, though, when we read fiction, any sort of fiction sympathetically? I mean, I mean you know, good, good fiction, classic fiction, good art of any sort, in fact. Yes, yes, and I think that's why... That's We're looking for an extension, an enlargement of imaginative sympathy, aren't we? That's right. We're looking for a sense that our, our present definitions of what it is to be human, what is to live in the world, yeah. are not necessarily the last word or the exhaustive version of reality. And... But the truth is out there in another sense. It's, it's out there in that oh, right. bigger um, universe. Well, the truth we is in the library, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And of course, it, yes, it's true of, of all serious fiction, all serious drama, all serious poetry. What, what it is, I, I hear another question coming there, what it is about certain kinds of fiction that gives it a, a religious... I would say aura that poses religious questions. Yeah. That's tougher. I, I suppose it has to do perhaps with some of those characteristically religious themes like absolution, how do you live with the past? Yes. Um, <coughs> with the possibilities of forgiveness and with whatever it is that poses at depth the question of how I relate to my entire environment, not just to what's mm. immediately around me to an entire environment, which for a religious person, of course, has God as the ultimate shape around it. Yes. Do you think fiction and drama and poetry, you mentioned all these three things, mm. do you think they, I mean, obviously they work in different ways. Do you think, from my point of view, probably the least um, easy, or, or, or the, the one of these which is least able to present a religious point of view is drama, and the most, the one who's most likely to be able to do it successfully is poetry. Why, why is drama? <coughs> because the sort of experience that we're talking about is a private, solitary, internal one, isn't it? No, not really. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm not sure I buy that. I think there's something... I'm just thinking, uh, just not to be sort of uh, ho hogging the... using my, my story to hog the mm -hmm. argument, but there was a, there's a passage in, in, in the book, His Dark Materials. I'm thinking of the passage where Mary Malone is uh, on her own exploring what it wondering, speculating about the nature of this mysterious thing that she's investigating, this thing we call mm. dust. That's a very important passage 
in the story, but you couldn't show it on the stage because all it would consist of is a woman sitting in a tree. Thank you. Yes, yes, I see that. <laughs> on the other hand, drama is, I think, an extremely communal activity. It's something which well, it's about necessarily human about human interaction to each, to each other. That's right? right. Which is why the origins of Western drama are actually ritual and religious. Yeah. In ways that still surface rather surprisingly. Um, and the the kind of event that living theatre is is, I think, still very ritualised, and it, that in a good sense, mm. so that it's it's bound to be mm, a place where certain emotions, perceptions are allowed out to literally to roam the stage in a corporate. Yes, so I, I don't think it's I, quite as inimical to religion interpreted, well, interpreted as you have in solitary wrestling with problems, yes. But what about those themes of corporate purgation? Well, crisis? you're absolutely right about that. And I remember seeing on this very stage the great production of the Oresteia many, oh, oh, yes, yes, 20 years yes, ago, yes, whenever it was. Um, and the sense of, uh, <laughs> yes, corporate is yes. social coming together That's and right. understanding right. and how, how to deal with these terrible events and these terrible feelings well, we, we find a ritual way of dealing with it, and, that's, that, uh, and that answers it, and it, it satisfies us aesthetically and morally and, and emotionally in every other sort of way. So, yes, I'm, I, I agree with you about that. But it's the solitary experience. What Wordsworth was talking about, for example, in Tintern Abbey, something like that, that perhaps is a, a sort of religious experience which can't be dramatized. And that, I, I suppose, underlines the fact that religious experience is not one thing lots of things going on, different kinds of artistic activity, I suspect, or artistic representation, do the job in different contexts yes. for different people. Certainly what Wordsworth is talking about is essentially a moment of, perhaps in the benign sense, self-awareness, you know, the, the real awareness of being a person in a living context, being bound up with something immense sort of runs through his individual awareness. But there are other things, I think, that um, religious experiences about. I've spoken about reconciliation. Um, that, that, I think, is something that's harder to do in poetry. Because you need a story. You need a story. And you need, you need dramatic interaction. Yes. I guess that my, my version would be that the novel is the least easy to do this in because the novel is profoundly bound up with chance and contingency and often with irony, all of which things sometimes sit uneasily with what are often thought to be religious orthodoxies. I don't entirely yeah. buy that, but I think that, that's one of the problems that's been perceived. And it's, I mean, it's very interesting to ask the question, why have some religious and cultural traditions produced a certain kind of fiction and some not? The Islamic world, which has a fantastically sophisticated philosophy, metaphysics, and scientific tradition, mm. has never generated the tradition of fiction we have in the West. Is there something about Christianity that makes for more restlessness and irony? I don't know. But I, I, I toy with that question sometimes. Uh, I know very little about uh, Islam, so I can't I possibly know. come into that question. Yeah. <coughs> One and form you haven't discussed is film, which works mainly in a very realistic way in representing religious stories. 
do you find that a useful approach? Works in a very realistic way. You, uh, well, it, you're encouraged to think that you are there. It's not working as theatre does through metaphor. Right. Isn't it? <laughs> I think film is deeply metaphorical. But I think that actually the last thing film does is to represent what's there. It's, sorry. <laughs> it's, no, to, to, to me, it's, it's about the creation of a particular visual sequence, highly patterned, highly stylized. And some directors, of course, are much more overt about that than others. Um, it's animated icons rather than representation. Things don't happen like that. But if all art is removing reality, if you like, into another medium and re remaking reality, you might also say, in another medium. Film is no exception. So I'm actually very interested in how film does deal with religious issues. And I'm not talking here about religious films, which are often slightly depressing um, as, you know, simply as, as artworks. But to take my, my favorite film with sort of religious subjects, and that's Babette's Feast. And there's not very much doctrine in that. It's not very much overt religiosity, except the, the rather grim religiosity, sort of thing you write about, <laughs> in the old people of the village and their pietist circle, into which comes a secular savior who has spent all that she has on equipping the people to have an elaborate pointless, over-the-top feast, in the course of which sins are confessed and reconciliation is achieved. And I think, hmm, <laughs> I watch that. Now, that's, it's, it's a sort of bloated version of a short story. Um, it's not a realistic depiction of rural life in Denmark, and it's not a film that's making a religious but watching it and absorbing that, what I call the animated icon of it gives me all sorts of things to reflect on in my own belief system. And no, it's not realistic. That's not what it's for. And the mistake made by some religious film, um, you know, that sort of 1950s biblical epics stuff, is, well, we have got to show religious things happening. And we all know what religious things are like. They have soft music and the kind of glow around the edges. <laughs> That's, I think, why I find it a bit depressing. Because it's actually very difficult, and maybe this does pick up on the drama thing again, very difficult to represent religious experience anyway, in any context. There's always been that kind of wrestling and tension about can it be shown. And that's where sort of easy resolution of a, you know, something like the robe or the Ten Commandments really won't do because what that shows is simply a kind of projection of a religiously tinged emotionalism. And it doesn't show things changing. That's the hard thing. Which leads us to Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> right. Have you seen that? I haven't seen it, no. No, no, right. So, but we can we can talk about it. That's all right. <laughs> That's where a lot of opinions are for that. It's 
yeah. reality, yeah. yes. But he yes. is presumably um, selling his film on the basis that it is a very realistic. I mean, people are thinking they are getting close to seeing what happened. But what's, what, what fascinates me about the phenomenon is that churches apparently are spending uh, thousands of pounds buying block booking tickets and giving them away to atheists in the hope that by seeing someone tortured to death, we'll, we'll reform. <laughs> that's, that's, that's happening. It's a real concern, I think, because I, I don't mean atheists reforming. That's be nice. But <laughs> now, the question how you represent um, what Christians believe is the pivotal event in the history of the universe is no simple one, and I don't think it can ever be answered. Um, but, no, I, but no. I thought the pivotal event was the resurrection. I'm taking it as the whole Which doesn't, event, come, the doesn't complex, come in. Which doesn't come in. The pivotal event is the whole of that Easter complex, if you like, right, yeah. the resurrection, which is why a realistic representation of the crucifixion on its own won't say what has to be said. And yeah. why, I mean, curiously, along the history of the church, the way it's been done in the church's liturgy and art is very often something that doesn't seem very realistic sense. You walk through the experience of Holy Week from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday in a, in a sort of ritual way, mm. um, picking up a bit of the Gospels here, a bit of the Prophets and the Psalms here, performing certain ritual acts in the, you know, the Catholic tradition particularly, watching through the night, um, a very curious distinctive liturgy for Good Friday with the bare cross being brought in and unveiled. And all of that, I think, is an attempt to say what a mere recitation of the story couldn't say, or a mere photograph couldn't say. Yeah. I remember years ago somebody um, saying to me that given the choice between having a video of the Sermon on the Mount and having half an hour with St. Peter after his betrayal, he'd go for the latter, because you would you would see in the complexities, the changes, the tensions that Peter had undergone, something you wouldn't see just by a kind of Sermon on the Mount video, which would, yeah. you know, would land you back in all the, the problems of what would you really see if you were there, what would you really hear? Well, this, this is exactly the heart of the problem about representation, isn't it? Yes. And whether, whether, it's, um, whether we're talking about a myth or, or about something else. I'm very struck by Karen Armstrong's um, uh, description in her new book of the difference between myth which she calls something that is um, a, a sort of basic human response to the problems, to the great questions of life and death. Um, between that sort of thing and what she calls logos, the rational um, attempt to work out answers by using our reason. Now, a rational depiction of uh, the events of the of Holy Week would, would have to be a sort of cinematic, would have to be, you'd have to show, show it cinematically as I take it that Mel Gibson does. But that would miss the other part, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it um, yes. miss the, the mythical element of it, which is, which is uh, something that has to be lived and lived and lived and lived again? That's right. That's Isn't that right? I mean, absolutely. I'm, 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 I, 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 as an atheist, I'm rather on difficult ground here, because, but um, presumably this is what a Christian believes. Yes. That, that, um. that, that, it, that it is something whose truth, whose, whose truth is not historical truth only, but it has some yes. sort of... That's uh, right. Li ...lives on. Is that right? Absolutely right. And it's a pity that the word mythology, of course, has 
the negative overtones it has, because it, it, I'd certainly want to right, say... That's right, because it, it has connotations of, oh, it's only a myth, it's, it's not only true, a myth. but that's, that's no. not really what We're, the myth We is. are at least talking about a set of historical events which have, as I would say, by God's guidance, become the centre of a vastly complex imaginative scheme yeah. um, in which the whole of human history and human life gets reoriented. And it's shown liturgically, dramatically, artistically, in ways that constantly transgress those apparently realistic modes. Yeah. So to take what tools to me is one of, one of the really powerful examples. And it's interesting that Mel Gibson does pick up one or two of these things in the film. The, the medieval convention, I'm told, the medieval convention that you show the skull of Adam at the foot of the cross. So the blood runs down onto the skull of Adam. Oh. Now, um, I don't actually imagine that the skull of Adam was on the historical Calvary. In fact, I'd be very surprised indeed. But there is, if you like, a deeply mythological moment. Or again, take the way that in but your... But don't you, just to... Just to sorry, doesn't the audience have to know that it is the skull of Adam? It doesn't yes. come with a label saying, it doesn't come Adam's skull. Adam's. Look, look. <laughs> um, Got that? <laughs> so this depends on the sort of sh um, shared understanding. Exactly. It depends on a sort of catechesis and induction into how it all works. Yeah. Um, likewise, I was going to mention the... Um, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, how do you show the resurrection? Well, you can't actually show the resurrection because if you try and show Jesus rising from the tomb, you end up with some of those rather embarrassingly awful Renaissance pictures of a sort of luminous figure bouncing out of the tomb on clouds and lots yes. of people sitting around looking rather surprised. In the Orthodox yeah. Church, <laughs> in the Orthodox Church, what you do is you show Jesus in hell rescuing Adam and Eve, yeah. standing astraddle over a great pit and grabbing Adam and Eve and pulling them out of their tombs. Mm. Again, you need to know what's going on there. But what that's saying is the kind of event this is is really not going to be represented at all effectively or at all adequately by an attempt at pseudo-photography. By realistic means, yes. It's got to be, it's got to be something, some... Uh, yes, exactly. And it takes time. That's, that's part of the problem. The, the, the apparent, the would-be photographic representation is, is quick, instantaneous, captured the moment. Yeah. Whereas the moment is something which, for a believer, goes on opening out and therefore can't be exhausted in that. It's the difference between, yes, it's the difference between myth and, and, and something that's to be understood literally. Karen Armstrong goes on to make the point that um, because of this sort of split between these two forms of understanding, it's, it, or, or this split has resulted in the unfortunate um, phenomenon of fundamentalism, where you get people trying to read a mythical account as if it is a literal account. Uh, it says God created the world in six days. It must have been six days, like that. Uh, and so you have creation science, and that's called in Gateshead, which is deplorable. The curious thing about that, I think, is that it's a very, very modern phenomenon. It, that's interesting, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's a kind of reaction to a scientistic rationalism, which says it couldn't have been like that. And the yeah. fundamentalist, instead of saying, well, what questions are being asked here, yes. immediately bounces back and says, oh, yes, it was. And you then have a, a sterile standoff, yes. which doesn't at all get to the level of the mythological in the proper positive sense yeah. that you're talking about. Sorry. We have time for some questions. Yes, I'm going to have to repeat each question so everyone can hear them. Yes. The question is, um, why was the archbishop dismissive about the teaching of humanism? I hope I wasn't dismissive. Perhaps I was, and if so, I'm sorry. But the point I was trying to make was that 
Atheism and humanism are not, if you like, freestanding systems. To understand what's going on, you need to understand a bit of what they're reacting against, religiously, I would say. And therefore, to begin with a proper internalized understanding of, as I said earlier, how religions work and why they're difficult, is how you get into understanding atheism and humanism. Can we just have questions from now on and as quickly as possible? Because we're going to get yes at the back. Is one truth that someone else is lying, would that inevitably lead to warfare? Uh, this, th th this raises the, the, the question of, of um, relativism and so on. It's a terribly difficult one, this. Um, if my religion is true, does that mean yours is false? But, if we're not worship but it, are we worshipping the same God by different names? It's, it's, it's a difficult one. Um, I'm temperamentally, again, the sort of postmodernist position that there is no truth, uh, and it's, it all depends on where you are, and, and it's, it's all you know, the result of um, the, the capitalist, imperialist, hegemony of bourgeois, all this sort of stuff. Um, I'm again that, but I couldn't tell you why. I'm rather like the old preacher. He was again sin. That, that was the message that came from his sermon. But I don't... Could, could I comment briefly on that? I, I, I share some of that suspicion. It's a temperamental, the, visceral the, thing. Yeah. I don't... But um, there is a real question as to whether we come at this in a sort of binary way, whether the question is always either completely true or completely false. Mm. And that, I think, is what provokes violence from your points of view. I, I don't believe that, let's say, the Buddhist is right about the way the universe is. On the other hand, I think I would be a far stupider person even than I am if I couldn't recognize that Buddhists know things that as a Christian I need to learn, even if I believe that my, you know, basically, the Christian view is, is as it is. Yes. The question is, uh, why is it um, the business of schools to teach religion, especially when there are so many different competing types of religion? Well, a clarification, perhaps. I don't think it's the business of schools in general to inculcate a particular set of religious beliefs. Church schools are another matter, but I don't think that's the job of religious education in the state school. But I believe that it's important, indeed essential, to teach religion in the sense that, as Philip said, this is something human beings do. They do it in ways which dramatically extend and challenge and complicate their humanity. Try and pull that out, and you actually have an education in something, I would say, less than human. Now, how you steer that through the, as you say, the shark-infested waters of controversy between religions and, indeed, for heaven's sake, within religions, <laughs> I don't entirely know. But I think it can be done. And I think it can be done if you keep before you very clearly that sense that if you believe this is right, and I do, and that's the point of what I'm defending, if you believe that religion is something without which human beings are not what they might be. Yes. There's a question for Philip Pullman um, from a fellow atheist who is appalled by the materialism of society, and um, how, how would Philip Pullman recommend uh, children develop a spiritual life? Well, um, very briefly, because this is a big and important question. 
I seldom use the word spiritual myself because I don't have a clear sense of what it means. But I do know what you're getting at. And I think it depends on your view of education. Whether you think that the purpose, the true end and goal and purpose of education is to help children um, acquire skills and grow up to compete in the face the economic challenges of a global environment that we're going to face in the 21st century, or whether you think it's to do with helping them see that they are the true heirs and inheritors of the riches, the philosophical, the artistic, the scientific, the literary riches of the whole world. If you, if you believe in setting children's minds alive and ablaze with excitement and passion, or whether you think it's a matter of filling them with facts and testing them on them, that's, 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 it depends on your vision of education. And I know which one I, I go for. I think we're entirely at one on that. <laughs> one more question. Yes, at the back. The question is that perhaps the relationship between Christ Christianity and fiction is that, fi is that Christianity itself is a, is a story and is incarnation. Yes, I think there's, there's a lot of truth in that, that you can't communicate Christianity, I would say, simply as a set of ideas. At some point, you're going to have to sit down and tell a story. And tell a story which, because it's a story, is bound to have some loose ends, some awkwardnesses. As it is, we have four versions of the story of Jesus in the New Testament because of that sense that a story can always be retold. And that already, I think, introduces a bit of this irony in the narrative, which is very important in reinforcing a sense that this is something mysterious. I think there is something in that fundamental characteristic of Christianity which helps to enable a particular kind of storytelling. Story is, story is fundamental. Uh, we, we began with Jesus, might as well end by reminding ourselves that Jesus was one of the greatest storytellers has ever been. Whether or not he was the son of God, he was a great storyteller. <laughs> Eight out of ten. <laughs>